3: Welcome to Postscript, a special series from New Books and Political Science on the New Books Network. We talk to scholars who've written extensively on a topic to offer insights into contemporary politics. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today we'll engage the possible political effects of Justice Alito's leaked Supreme Court draft overturning Roe v. Wade with Lily Gorin, Professor of Political Science and Global Studies at Carroll University, Dr. Rebecca Kreitzer, Associate Professor of Public Policy and Adjunct Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Dr. Andrew R. Lewis, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Cincinnati, Dr. Candace Watts-Smith, Associate Professor of Political Science at Duke University and co-host of the Democracy Works podcast, and Joshua C. Wilson, Professor of Political Science at the University of Denver. Denver. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, everybody. Uh, The leaked opinion comes from a case considering Mississippi's Gestational Age Act, which prohibits all abortions with exceptions for fetal abnormalities and the health of the mother after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The law has no exception for rape or incest, and it contradicts almost 50 years of Supreme Court doctrine that is held that women may elect to have an abortion before the fetus is viable outside the womb. Uh, During oral arguments, five justices, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, indicated willingness to overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and the leaked opinion by Justice Alito appears to confirm what we learned in oral arguments. Uh, We've seen a lot of commentary on the leak and the content of the decision, so this conversation will take advantage of our guest's expertise in politics. And let's start with the effect of overturning Roe. If the official decision is similar to the leaked draft, who will have access to abortion in America? What will will actually change with this decision?
4: I think that one thing that we'll see is we'll see the continued bifurcation of access to abortion across the U.S. Um, Like many other policy issues that the country faces today in a federal system, there are People in some states have access to more rights than have in other states. So, what is the immediate um, outcome of this Supreme Court decision when it's eventually announced? Well, some states will go back to their pre Roe abortion policies. Others will go, and some of those, by the way, are quite old, dating back to the 1800s. Some of them will, some states will revert to policies um, enacted right around the time of Roe versus Wade. A few states, um, about 13 of them, have what are called trigger laws, which would then uh, put into place new abortion restrictions. And the rest of the states will be in a frantic scramble to try to either loosen or tighten restrictions to abortion. We're seeing that in some states like Kansas, which actually have a right to abortion in their state constitution, uh, considering taking that back. Um, And so what we'll see is that some states will have abortion access and other states will not. And people will have to travel long distances in order to get an abortion. I think that the points
5: that Rebecca brings up are really important about how um, they're just going to be differential experiences at the state level. We're going to see a patchwork of inequality arise. I think maybe more broadly speaking um, is that we might have kind of a, a, her- a, a historical heuristic that we might uh, lean into, which is you know when Americans get a cold, people of color and poor people are going to get the flu. We saw this um, with COVID. We see it with unemployment. We see it, you know, in the recession and the loss of wealth. Um, and we're going to see it here. That you know when there is some sort of um, instability and or even a taking away of rights. Um, you know, there's going to be a differential impact whereby um, already vulnerable Americans are going to be made, um, put, put in, in even more precarious situations.
2: Can I add one, one thing to that, too, is that states where you still have access, there are these questions of how much strain will be put on the resources that are available in those states already. Like this is an mm-hmm. active conversation going on right now in Colorado of looking at the geography Thinking about where we are in relation to states like Texas, and asking, you know, while uh, access is protected in the state of Colorado, will the clinics in Colorado have the resources to meet the demand? And that's that's an open question still. <laughs>
4: I would say that it's almost not an open question. We've seen that since SB8 that there's only been about a 10 percent reduction in the total number of abortions that Texan women have gotten. It's just that they haven't gotten them in Texas. So since SB8 has passed, Oklahoma likewise has passed a similar law uh, prohibiting abortions at around six weeks. And as more and more states do that, we're going to see the strain very much overpower existing abortion clinics already today across the country, more than in some places, 30 to 50% of people in abortion clinic waiting rooms right now are already from Texas. So as more States continue to pass these restrictions, absolutely abortion clinics across the entire country will be overwhelmed. It'll take a long time in order to get a clinic appointment, which then may put people past gestational limits in various States.
3: Uh, thanks, Rebecca, Kansas, and jo- uh, Candace and Josh. Uh, the and so if when you look at the map, which we don't have because this is a podcast, you know you can really see how through the Midwest and the South there will be this kind of abortion desert, and then there will be these places of access. And whether states like, for example, Virginia or Florida, which direction they go will. Will impact those people who need to travel. And and we should point out that not all abortions require traveling. Medication abortions don't necessarily require getting in a car. Surgical abortions do. And we'll talk a little bit about about that later. But I think what you guys are are drawing for us is, is a, a picture, a map in which There is a geography here, but then there's also a demography of it, as um, Candace puts it, and it's an historical one, and it's a racial one, uh, and it's also a class one, that we will have access of very, very different types for different people throughout the country. Um, You know, after 50 years of being a fundamental right protected by the Supreme Court, Abortion is going to become a policy that is controlled and debated by states. Uh, Alito presents that as a potentially liberating move because women can decide the issue for themselves. Uh, Candace and Rebecca, you have a remarkable piece in the Washington Post's Monkey Cage that we'll link in the show notes. Should we take Justice Alito's claims about the democratic process and women's empowerment at face value?
5: It's so exhausting. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean, the thing about it is that Alito is a Supreme Court justice who was also um, on the court when um, Shelby V. Holder came across the court. And that essentially um, took out the teeth of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which did serve to produce more, let's say more democracy across the states. And so for a person who helped to um, strike down uh, and to, uh, to strike down access to voting to then say that we should just allow people to vote is asinine. You know, um, in the leaked opinion, you know, he mentions that, you know, at Roe, um, 30 states prohibited um, abortion and some states were liberalizing, but Roe abruptly ended the political process. And, you know, he's just kind of not being sincere about the historical context under which the uh, political process was going on then. And he's not being um, honest about the political process as it exists now. So the idea that we should just leave it to the states because that would produce more that's democracy. I think he's leaning into like that notion of majoritarian democracy, which is not necessarily protective of minority rights. Um, and so, I mean, he he will get what he suggests, which is, um, you know, w- w- it, n- no one is expecting. Um, no one is expecting many states, such as my own home state. Um, You know, states like Mississippi, um, (laughs) which has the largest black population in the country to ever really um, produce policies that will, um, you know, in any way represent the preferences of a large portion of its population.
4: It's also worth adding that uh, women have been excluded from power in a myriad of ways. So while women do vote at a higher rate than men, women running for office face um, a myriad of challenges that their male counterparts don't experience. And to build off of what Candace was speaking about, especially relating to women of color, uh, we've seen very rigorous advocacy from women of color on the issue of abortion dating back for decades, including the reproductive Justice Movement um, and Sister Song, which is from around 1992. And although Black women are frequently called the backbone of the Democratic Party because they reliably turn out at a high rate for Democrats, that really hasn't translated in terms of their policy preferences being represented by the Democratic Party, as the Democratic Party just takes for granted that Black women will vote for them over Republicans.
5: I mean, the other thing I think is worth pointing out and, you know, we, you know, Rebecca and I discussed this in in the piece is that um, to say that women vote more than men in many states is it's not enough. Uh, Which women are are going to have the greater say? Um, Is it going to be conservative white women? Is it going to be Um, liberal, you know, liberal women of various stripes. So just this idea that women uh, have some sort of similar set of ideas and ideology around this policy, um, you know, again, misses out on the nuances of the political process um, in, in this leaked decision.
3: So if I get you right, Candace and Rebecca, first, we have a sort of hypocrisy in terms of what we present as a neutral political process. Alito isn't speaking to voter suppression, the kind of voter suppression that the Voting Rights Act was trying to tamp down. He's not speaking to gerrymandering and the ways in which uh, minority populations are often packed or cracked so that their um, impact is diluted. And we have these assumptions about women as if they can and will go out and vote for their rights and take care of us in, again, in a neutral scenario. So, I I mean, I think your piece is amazing. Everybody should go read it in its entirety. And it also takes you to some really great political science research on these topics. Um, but I think o- overall that kind of summarizes much of what's going on. And, and so you're seeing Alito is, in fact, we shouldn't take him at face value on this. Um, what about the history that's in that very long opinion, in which r- ranges from Matthew Hale and the common law to colonial stuff, um, should we take that history at face value? Is that a good contribution? Is, is, can, can we read that and say that is true?
4: Absolutely not. If that was a student paper, it would get a low grade in my class because it is ahistorical and it actually is, in some ways, proving the opposite point of what he's trying to make. So, first of all, he points out, he's, he argues that our conceptualization of ordered liberty ought to be based off of these originalist principles of what ordered liberty looked like several hundred years ago, which I think it's obvious that we can pause there and say, Why should our concept of ordered liberty be based off of what whose rights existed 300 years ago? Because obviously there's a lot of people whose rights did not exist 300 years ago, including women's rights uh, across the board. But the other thing is, is that he then tries to paint this historical picture of abortion legality in the United States that is simply inaccurate. So, for example, he goes through uh, the many different types of abortion restrictions that existed in the 1800s, but almost all of the cases that he himself cites are based on the idea that abortion was broadly legal and socially acceptable up until the point of quickening. Quickening tends to take place around 17 to 20 weeks of gestation, and that's when the pregnant person is able to feel movement of the fetus. The case of Mississippi's abortion law currently facing the Supreme Court has a gestational ban of 15 weeks, which is before quickening. So one might say, based off of this history, that there isn't a constitutional right to abortion based on viability, but rather quickening. But that's not what Alito says. Instead, Alito says that because these policies existed in the past that restricted abortion, Therefore, there's no right to abortion. But really, these cases that he repounds are saying that there is a right to abortion up until around the 17th to 20th week.
2: I just add too that the the history, I had a similar reaction when I was reading the opinion of it It was taking me a really long time because I was doing so much marginalia uh, and thinking about it in terms of like a student paper as well. But but another thing that struck me about this was how apolitical the history was as well, like just stripping out a lot of what we know about how abortion became a political issue, why it became politicized, how it became politicized. This was all just stripped out of that history as well.
3: Say, say a little bit more about that, Josh. Everyone here is nodding in the podcast, but for, for the wider audience.
2: Sure, um, so one of those, those elements is like, pretty standard in talking about the history and the creation of abortion as a political topic is the ascent of the medical profession. And so as uh, the medical profession was well becoming a profession, right, that uh, they were using state legislatures in part to carve out space where they could lay claim. And one of those spaces is going to be around women's reproductive health and this tension or conflict between midwives and kind of ascendant doctors. And so they were able to use state legislatures against essentially professional rivals in terms of of midwives. Um, And anybody else feel free to jump in here as well. But, uh, and one of the things kind of about that too is as you move forward in time, doctors then become part of the whole liberalization push of abortion decades later, right? And all of this is, is left out of that history.
4: And I'd add that today the medical establishment advocates that abortion should be legal. And in fact that many physicians who do research on abortion and abortion providers today are advocating for loosening the restrictions of medication abortion to allow for self-managed abortions. Um, and, that's because it's increasingly safe, um, and so what's interesting is that the medical establishment has played an agenda-setting role in shaping our understanding of the safety of abortion, and today, getting an abortion, a surgical abortion procedure, is actually has about the same risk factor as getting a root canal, uh, so that is to say that abortion is very safe, and medication abortion is very safe. So the medical establishment today continues their advocacy on this issue, but the courts are Listening in the same way that they
2: have in the past. I would actually even add that the court in abortion context, uh, the court hasn't listened to to medical establishment. Right? If We can look at something like <laughs> at yeah, in, yeah. Gonzalez versus Carhart. Right? Yeah. There's the majority there is actively working to. Marginalize mainstream medical establishment and you can see that in the kind of the criticisms in ruth bader ginsburg's dissent and and so forth so there's there's been this modern tension between conservative justices and the medical establishment in the abortion context as well
3: and Just to clarify, Carhart is the uh, one of the cases that involves third trimester abortions. It involves an enormous amount of data about the risks to uh, the woman, the risks to the um, uh, fetus, how it's performed. It's it's a very explicit, very data filled. But as you have all said really eloquently, the the data gets ignored. Um, I want to put another piece of the political history in. Josh, thanks for sort of calling that uh, political erasure out. You know, we often talk about abortion as a religious issue, a one in which you know Christians up all oppose abortion, but the history is a lot more complicated. Andrew, uh, you had a remarkable Twitter thread this week that I found really helpful, and others did as well, about the positions that evangelicals took in the 1970s and behind. So I'm wondering if we could go back to that moment as Roe is being decided and just give us a little bit of the history on which religious groups are uh, not liberalizing. For example, before Roe, we're seeing lots of states move, and they're not actually states in, in, in the East, and that has to do with the number of Catholics in those states. So, so tell us a little bit about the political history involving religious groups, particularly evangelicals.
6: Yeah, well, uh, it's sort of complicated, which uh, which I'm glad you picked up on, on that point. I was saying, but in general, in the you know 19 mid to late 1960s, early 1970s, primarily you have sort of I would say a Catholic dominance and opposition to abortion. You see, and then I would say some what we might call Northern Protestants um, join that group, and so you're you're seeing those are the the pockets of of stronger opposition. Um, southern protestants uh evangelicals in the south are are sort of silent and some accepting of of abortion rights in some ways but you also have this history of what i what i try to point on this thread of, of fundamentalist christians um speaking out about abortion and combining it with a whole bunch of fundamentalist concerns about uh the family and the government of america and the the Way that the nation should be rooted in certain moral in a certain moral vision, and so all of that is a bit in the mix. By the time you end up with Roe versus Wade, you have uh, you have some tensions, right? I think you have um, you have some big evangelical institutions supportive of uh, the Supreme Court and at least some uh, levels of, of abortion rights, and then you have Catholics opposing, and then and then I would say growing movements of, of Protestants joining that. Um, by the end of the 1970s, that was really when you get this sort of growing coalescing, especially on the elite side of opposing abortion. There's been some discussion, you know, like that those things are um, that the movement of the Christian right to embrace opposition to abortion is primarily an agenda to, to cover for their views on uh, race and um, protecting segregation. I, I think that's an important part of the story. I think that story uh, has many facets, though. I wouldn't say that that's the only part. I think that that history existed um, somewhat before then, but it all sort of uh, gains momentum um, by the end of the 1970s among elites, and then a decade later or so, we start seeing growing sorting among the sort of the mass public, um, and so that happens a bit later. So. It's, I would say, somewhat complicated. I could walk, we can walk talk about some of the, the different features here, but we should think about Catholics. We should think about, you know, fundamentalist Protestants. We should think about the growing conservatism and Southern conservatism um, that comes to the anti-abortion movement by uh, the late 70s and 1980s and how that changes in some sense the emphasis and style of, of the political movement. So those are a few things that, I, that I've been thinking through.
3: But before I go to others, you mentioned elites. So, in terms of, of uh, the rank and file, what kind of positions do they hold in terms of abortion compared to their leaders? Do we uh, we just had reporters come to Saint Joseph's University, Catholic University, and they were shocked that they found a bunch of very pro-choice, but also very committed catholic women uh speaking to them Uh, they were surprised by that but i think people who look at the polls weren't so what does it look like for evangelicals
6: you know i I, uh certainly white evangelicals are going to be the most uh the most committed to uh restricting abortion the 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 most committed group but that doesn't mean that they um are completely in support of, of total bans on abortion rights as far as the mass public right and so i think um there is, uh, there's a it, it across the public, right? There's sort of this middle middle position where I think the majority of people want to keep um, keep abortion rights uh, constitutional, so keep the legacy, but then they also are, are supportive of some restrictions that perhaps Roe and Casey um, don't don't allow. And so for for um, some of these religious groups, especially. Uh, Evangelicals, and then I would say the next tier down would would be white Catholics. They are, you know, closer to the conservative end of that uh, stream, but certainly not um, as far as some of the state level policies will go.
3: And what about Black evangelicals?
6: Yeah, uh, this is a great question. So um, I would say there's a couple, and I would love to hear what other people think about this because. um, African-American evangelicals and African-American Protestants aren't my expertise, but I will say that there are um, some competing uh, visions, just like the competing visions of white Christianity, there's competing views on on how how they view the status of abortion and the legality among those um, um, groups. In general, uh, religious people of a whole variety of stripes tend to be um, more conservative on on the issue of abortion than non-religious. But uh, I would say you have strong advocates for, you know, reproductive justice coming connected to the African American uh, religious traditions, and so there are there are a few different, a couple different streams of thought that we might want to you know, think through.
4: There's been some really interesting research in the last few years coming out of political science that's looking at the intersections of gender, race, and religion, and especially the ways in which women have a different relationship with religion. So in general, there tends to be like a higher level of uh, religious uh, membership and attendance among women compared to men. But then there's different relationships of that when you're looking at Hispanic and black women compared to white women. And that structures um, how people think about things like abortion. Um, And part of this has to do with denominations and cultures. And so, for example, in like, many Latino Catholic um, communities, there is more of a, a, like a hierarchy, um, a gendered hierarchy, and that can translate and shape how uh, people in those communities think about these issues. So I'm not a, you know, although I've published a little bit on this, I'm not an expert on it either, other than to say that I, that there's, really complicated dynamics going on at the intersection of these multiple identities. And I think it's one of the reasons why if you look at public opinion on abortion, It's incredibly murky. So although we know that like in the aggregate public opinion looks to be stable over time, that belies a whole lot of complexity. But most importantly, most Americans do not have internally consistent uh, views about abortion. There's a lot of internal conflict. And depending on how you ask questions, uh, people often report contradictory feelings about it. And I think it's because of these cross-pressures that are related to their different um, identities.
6: Yeah, and it's really and interesting, too, because you have women who are probably the most re- uh, religious, right, more religious than men, and t- and typically, But um, and then um, you end up with some of these cross-pressures. We don't have a strong gender divide on some of these abortion questions, but and, in fact, you see women leading movements on the right and the left. On this issue yeah interestingly is- there's
4: a growing movement on the right pro-woman pro-life it's a woman-led movement to restrict abortion and we especially see younger women who are involved with that um, and it, it's been a big puzzle for political scientists for years that there hasn't been a big gender divide in between men and women when it comes to abortion but i will say that when you control for feminist ideology or orientation then there is a gender difference
5: I'm really glad that we're having this conversation mostly on this point, and I'm not an expert here, um, is that typically when we talk about religion in America and we talk about um evangelicals, what we're doing is we're talking about white evangelicals, and the conversation then puts the like kind of um the idea that white evangelicals have a monopoly over morality and religion and their kind of ideas and orientation toward politics. Um, And so, you know, my my sense of my just kind of personal experience is that, you know, um, religious black folks are not necessarily for abortion, but they're also not for state control over their reproductive health. And, you know, historically, we've seen that when that is the case, it is not good for Black people, either because they are made to produce children that they have no control over, or that they um, are subject to sterilization. So, you know, I'm really glad that we're just kind of talking about this and putting it out on on the floor to just kind of Think through how um, Americans across racial groups um, view politics within the realm of religion. That you know, there are many Americans who have a sense of um, what do they think. Uh, you know, their religion would guide them to do. Um, um, but but yeah, just just more 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 or less. I think it's important for us to just kind of keep our finger on the pulse around these dynamics as well.
3: And Candace, you know, you talked earlier about uh, Alito's sort of gestures at neutrality, but behind them there being no neutrality. And here we have conservatives on the court who have been very aggressive about religious rights and religious practice and people being able to, for example, deny somebody birth control because they don't believe in it. Yet this opinion does not, in fact, indicate that. Many religions have different views on when life begins. Uh, Judaism has very, very particular, Islam has very particular ideas of when the soul comes into the fetus. And in fact, and there were Twitter threads on this flying around this week as all that were also excellent, Judaism requires access to abortion. So in a lot of ways, this decision would violate the Establishment Clause and Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution. Because this is about more than abortion and it is about more than one group's ideas. And I, I completely agree with you that this idea that the moral majority, to go back to like dating myself to sort of those years, was a really remarkable strategic move to say that we are the morality and these other people are the immoral people. And I think that one of the things that will have to happen is for those who support reproductive rights to find a language that includes this. And, and that is actually a very, it's a really hard lift, I think. I Josh, you had something was, you wanted to say. Oh, sorry. sorry.
4: I was just going to say, i point out that Jewish women have been very involved in the reproductive justice movement um, back to the 90s. And I think that's a very compelling way of reframing uh, what this whole discussion is about. And I'm really sorry. Yeah. So go ahead, Josh.
3: No, and and actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to I'm going to interrupt myself. And it actually, Rebecca, goes back to the 1930s and to uh, pre-Nazi Germany, where more Jewish women were obstetricians, gynecologists, and we're working with Dutch caps. There's a very long history of all of this. And, and again, we just wash it away because I think as Candace says, like we're we're focusing on white evangelicals and we have a hard time parsing out all of the pluralist uh, faiths that we have. Josh, you've been so patient. And then Lily has been so patient.
2: <laughs> this has been a lot of the things that, uh, that I, I was gonna add in. It's just like how much that story of, religion and abortion is bound up in a very particular political story of the politicization of abortion and the ascent of conservatism within the Republican Party and the creation of white evangelicals as a political constituency that was part of that whole movement, right? That this is part of that apolitical history in the draft opinion that's really important to understand, right? Is that we have these kind of assumptions now that are born out of this very specific kind of political history. Um, And I, I, I just go back to like Andy's book is phenomenal about this, of like the importance and place of abortion in bringing white evangelicals ever more solidly into the Republican Party, right? And making them into Republicans, right? So there's the the religion abortion discussion is, like I said, just so bound up in this political history. The the other one too, just to go back to a a point of Rebecca's from much earlier about polling is I go back to like Zaid Munson has this idea of abortion being this empty shell that is filled by kind of the political issues of the day. And what allows that to happen in part is the ill-defined space space that abortion occupies in, in the American public's head, right? That, that because people think they know what abortion is, but they don't actually have a lot of detail in there, it allows for abortion to be this fluid, pliable topic in American politics that can be mobilized in different ways over time. Mm-hmm. But I know a bunch of you now want to say things, so i have got to pull back.
0: I, I just wanted to mention and and sort of build on this uh, this the the capacity um, that abortion has within our imaginary space because I I do this work on popular culture and our imaginary space and our understanding of narratives and as you've all pointed out the Alito opinion is one that's both a historical and apolitical. political so it's sort of this this sort of decision that that is. existing to some degree out of a narrative, um, because it has been constructed to present an understanding of not only abortion, but women's rights that may or may not, you know, be accurate, doesn't seem to be quite accurate. Um, But I would also sort of, you know, build on um, what we're sort of saying here with regard to how abortion is presented in popular culture, um, and our understanding of it. And the fact that it has been something, of course, that, you know, as we talk about abortion, it's between a woman and her doctor and her family. It's not public, it's private, it's the right to privacy. Um, And that because of that, it is, you are able to project all kinds of sort of components to it. Um, and when we see it in popular culture, there have been actually different sort of narrative approaches over time. Um, and we're at a period now where abortion has sort of come back into discussion in popular culture, but for a long time it it kind of wasn't um, a topic. It it was something that happened Oftentimes, if it was if somebody was pregnant and they didn't want to have the baby, they would have a miscarriage um, in television and film. Um, and <clears throat> and so the problem would be solved. Um, and there was a really fascinating thread this morning on Twitter with regard to dirty dancing and the fact that abortion mm-hmm. is the centerpiece And
4: Greece, like two of the most iconic movies of that era.
0: (laughs) And and that, you know, there is no story in Dirty Dancing without the fact that it was a botched abortion um, because it wasn't legally protected and that there were, you know, threatened the health and mortality of the, this, a character. Um, and that spun out the entire rest of the narrative of the movie. Um, and, and this is the case on television shows. This is the case on, um, in, in other movies. And I think that that's why abortion also that you're able to project that Alito is able to project a particular narrative because this is something that's private.
3: Andrew, please.
6: Uh, mary ziegler who can't be with us has this great approach in her book after row where it says like over the decade after row uh both the right and the left constructed meanings for what for what that case meant and it helped build the sort of mobilization it really i think it makes me think that we were going to be constructing meanings after dobbs right And, and it won't happen in june and july but it'll happen over the next five or six years. And that, those meanings, like, wh- like what it comes to symbolize, wh- if they get tied to mobilization, and this is where you really will start to see political effects. So if I were to, to say, like, what should we be thinking about uh, as a bunch of political scientists, like we should be thinking about what meanings arise and how do those meanings get attached to the public, but more importantly, the mobilized groups of the public. Um, so just something to, to highlight as we're all referencing really good books we like.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it
6: <clears throat>
1: a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
5: Candace. Yeah, just to piggyback uh, off of both Lily and Andrew, the, the thing that, you know, just thinking about, well, what's next? And especially around grassroots organizing is one of the heavy lifts, as mentioned, is going to be around discourse. It's going to be around getting people to understand and, you know, I mean, there are democratic elites who don't even want to use the word abortion. And so, you know, even just kind of talking about that and understanding actually that abortion is quite capacious and like what is considered an abortion uh, removal of an ectopic pregnancy. Um, sometimes your your insurance uh, like includes like miscarriage care as abortion care. Um, you know, all of the things that, you know, we probably we all know someone who's had an abortion. So there's going to be have to be a lot of work around um, public knowledge so much because um, as as both Andrew and Lily have mentioned, these have been things that have been, um, you know, private over you know with your doctor or with your family um and so you know there's just like not a lot of public knowledge about um the the nuts and bolts ins and outs nuances of abortion and one other thing i think is like um like we have this idea that you either go to a doctor or you get a hanger and you know even this kind of like dichotomy of possibility Um, really kind of narrows our understanding of what steps could be taken um, in the meantime, uh, as, you know, um, as, as, you know, we, I guess, put this back into the political process, as Alito would say.
3: And it ignores that roughly 50% of abortions in the United States are not surgical abortions in clinics; they're medication abortions, and we don't have film of people sitting on couches, taking a pill and waiting for its effects. That that's not the image that, uh, as referring to Lily's, like that's gonna you know make a, a, a movie plot move ahead. Uh, Rebecca, you you've been incredibly patient here.
4: Yeah, I mean I think this is a really important conversation to be having, and I think part of this. to do with the demedicalization of abortion so there was a recent article in the washington post that was about termination for fetal um uh for like fetal harm or you know fetal defect and throughout the whole article they they almost never say the word abortion and that's really common so um if you have an ectopic pregnancy as candace mentioned the treatment for that is abortion either the pregnant person dies or the fetus dies or they both die and that's the only three outcomes that can happen. A miscarriage management, the standard protocol is an abortion. Without that, and before abortion was broadly legal, people would die of sepsis, which takes several weeks. Um, And so abortion is The standard treatment, but a lot of people don't even know that they themselves have had an abortion because sometimes health professionals will kind of shield them from the a word and so instead they'll just talk about a procedure or a termination or something like that. But in doing that I have I just want to add that, um, you know, Aside from these medical reasons why abortion is necessary, such as the ones that I just mentioned, there are many reasons why abortion is still valid, especially when we think about the way that pregnancy is incredibly traumatic to the entire body, physically and emotionally, uh, psychologically. And so we should be thinking about health in terms of you know broadly speaking about well-being. And the last thing that I
3: wanted to respond to- And Rebecca, if you don't mind me interrupting, and also, the economic stability of the family. So, we know from yes. the Turnaway <laughs> Study that uh, another book that will link that uh, it increases family debt. It-
4: a whole host of uh, indicators that represent family stability and economic ability, like resilience and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a great book. In the Turnaway study, just to uh, explain it to the listeners, it's a fantastic book in which they follow the people who were turned away from getting an abortion because they had exceeded the gestational limit in the state. And so they followed those people to see what happened. Did they go and get an abortion elsewhere? Did they have the child? Did they give the child up for um, adoption? And it's a really fascinating, it's a, a full book worth of sociological evidence um, to indicate why abortion is really necessary, especially in this country where we have just, you know, honestly, a horrific and unaffordable health care, especially for low-income people. The last thing that I wanted to highlight here is this discussion about what illegal abortion will look like today. And as Candace said, it's not about the coat hanger. In fact, the coat hanger iconography is really inaccurate for what what abortion, illegal abortion looks like today. So the most common type of so-called illegal abortion would be medication abortions. And within medication abortions, we've seen that these These are very political, Uh, and it's worth noting that the medication for medication abortion has been around for many decades, was in very prevalent and legal in developing countries, and so in contrast, the illegality of it in the U.S. is quite fascinating. In recent years, there have been a lot of um, state policies to try to restrict access to telemedicine in order to get medication abortion, and we've seen. an increase in those. And so in talking about medication abortion, there's kind of two types of illegal abortion in the future. So one type is people who are getting medication abortions With some contact with providers, and so we can call those self-managed abortions. That's where you get medication abortion from the provider, and then go home to the comfort of your home or wherever to uh, pass. You know, the it, it, it induces a miscarriage. But the other thing, and the more likely uh, type of illegal abortion in the future is self-sourced and managed abortion. So self-sourced and managed abortion is when people buy the pills online. And there's a lot of online marketplaces, some with very legitimate medication, but a growing black market of fake medication. And there's an information gap here in the sense that people uh, that that medication abortion is very safe and has been around for a long time, but we are going to be seeing a division between those who are able to obtain a medication abortion with consultation and information from health professionals and those that are doing it illegally or uh, getting pills across state lines, which states are um, are increasingly restricting. And it's raising a lot of concerns for activists, like how can we advocate and teach people about how to access medication abortion? What should you do if you've had a medication abortion and you need to see a health professional? And so these are some of the new questions and concerns that we will be confronting with as we face this kind of new landscape of what abortion illegality looks like.
3: Thanks so much, Rebecca. I want to pivot us. uh, uh, One thing about this group is every time we get together, we realize just how deeply abortion brings you because it affects all aspects of political life. So it's not a failing that we can't do this in a short period of time. Uh, It speaks to the depth of political science research and this group, But let's talk a little bit about electoral politics, because we're coming up on midterm elections that are very, very important. And then we're going to come up on a presidential election that also has the potential for changing the direction of politics in the United States. So what would this decision, if it is the official decision of the Supreme Court in June, mean for the political landscape?
6: I'm... Skeptical that there's gonna be enormous political changes. Um, and I, I'll just say, and I, and I think uh, part of it is a lot of this is already baked into our political system. And so we have um, largely sorted in some sense into camps where you are either affirm your party's views or you tolerate it. And then um, we have structures of state level, uh, the way we, handle elections and representation at the state levels, um, protect, I would say, uh, broadly, I say more extreme views than what might be the the median voter of your party. And so I would just, uh, I think it will certainly be a mobilizing and a a money generating thing, but I don't expect it to flip national politics in a big way. there, there will probably be some really important discussions at state level politics and a, attorney generals and local prosecutors and how they're thinking about some of these things. But um, I'm cautious about over predicting big effects for November 22 and November 24.
2: Yeah, and just to add to that, um, I definitely think about this also in terms of, of mobilization and in doing that, right, you have to consider abortion against everything else that's going on, right? And so, uh, you know, inflation, the economy being really, really big elephants in the room on this.
6: Well, I would say, Josh, I think your point is the Democrats, the, the fundamentals of what the Democratic Party has to run against in, in 22 with the economy are, uh, and just midterm elections in general, right, uh, are, are going to be a challenge. And so we have to think about that in not in... This issue is not in isolation, but it's mixed in, mixed together. Um, certainly, now the Republican Party has softened in places where the Republican uh, Republicans that we maybe more pro-choice. Uh, it's softened in support. So we're talking about suburban, educated men and women who used to vote Republican. That 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 constituency has softened over the last couple cycles. We probably will see more of that. Um, but then I think that's been buttressed by a growing level of. Um, non-college-educated whites who are turning out on the Republican side. So um, we'll probably see some of those demographic t- trends continue and maybe even expedite following this, but I don't know that we're going to see major changes. That, that We'll see, I guess.
2: Yeah, and two, these are the two other points that, that I lost, but I have since resurrected in my head. Um, one is, is just the way that both parties can mobilize around whatever the eventual opinion is. Right, so there's, we can very clearly see the democratic means to mobilization right now. Right, that, and and we need to think about this too in relation to, again, polling data over time. And one of the things we see in polling data with Democrats versus Republicans is in terms of ranking abortions importance uh, in elections, we see Democrat. You know, traditionally Republicans rank abortion higher uh, than do Democrats, but during the Trump years you start to see the rise of a concern around abortion with democratic voters. And so there's the space there for, for mobilization, right? Because that, that ascent is coupled with the increased perception of the threat to abortion. This makes that all the more real, right? And, and so there's that mobilizing potential there. On the other side, You know, the in one way you could say, ah, this could demobilize or this takes away abortion from conservative voters because they've won. But no, there's still ways to run on this, right? That even if you've removed Roe, well, what that does is it opens up the doors to more regulation. So even if your state has banned abortion, you then you can start looking beyond right and this is getting to some of the points that rebecca was bringing out about you know regulating access across state lines regulating women from your state who go to another state like how do you how do you start to reach beyond your borders so there're still mobilizing opportunities for both parties around abortion questions still are open there about how much how much does each party want to kind of pursue this? But, but I'll stop there.
4: I have so many things to say about this. Cause I think it's like a really interesting conversation. And to one point, like, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I think both parties have kind of been sleeping on this issue, but the activists haven't. So activists on both sides of the issue have been seeing this writing on the wall, this is going to happen. And so both activists on both sides are already mobilized, ready to adapt and kind of guide policymakers. So I think one thing that I'd like to add to this conversation is that when I say that both sides are sleep, have been kind of sleeping on the issue, I think that both sides had a believability gap. Neither side really thought that Roe versus Wade would fundamentally be overturned, the essential holding being that there's a legal right to abortion. And so Republicans felt comfortable um, introducing and passing uh, increasingly... radical abortion policy because they felt confident that it would be enjoined by the courts. And so it wouldn't actually go into an effect. And I think they're going to face a discomfort as Their constituents are now living under this like new paradigm. And at the same time, Democrats had a believability gap. They thought that the courts would protect us. And so they haven't prioritized the issue of abortion in a way that they should have for many years. And instead kind of uh, like tried to not comment on it to capture these like suburban voters so Josh said something earlier about how abortion is just, you know, like one of many issues that's on the ballot. And that's very true. But I also think that, that Republicans have employed the issue of abortion strategically in order to capitalize on other potential policy gains. So for example, the use of abortion as a political tool has helped to fundamentally shape the legal regime and judiciary, as you can read about in Andy's book. Um, and that has an effect on kind of like the future way that we understand these things. But really the end game there is not just to restrict abortion, it's like using abortion in order to reconstruct the federal judiciary so that you can also get gains, not just on like whether or not transgender children should be able to get gender affirming healthcare, but also on environmental regulation and should states be able to restrict um, their you know pollution in different ways from each other. And the, the last thing i will add is that With thinking about this believability gap um, and the idea of abortion actually becoming scarce, is one really interesting finding in the public opinion literature is that older women have the most liberal views about abortion. And that is not true for any other policy issue where you would say, oh, yes, older women, the most liberal among the population. And the reason why is because they have experienced a time of abortion scarcity. So I do think that like all of the public polling that we've done on abortion in the past has been a little bit hypothetical. And that's kind of like, what would you think if Roe versus Wade is overturned? Though most people don't even know what Roe versus Wade really said, but but now when people are starting to experience the abortion scarcity in their own personal lives or observing it, I think that we should expect that there will be a change in public opinion.
2: This this is just to add one thing here. um, This is why I think it's really interesting to look at how Republicans are going to respond to this new political reality. Because as as Rebecca just said, right, they've always had this safety backstop of the court so they could move into acting aggressively against abortion in order to signal things to their constituents. But they knew they had the comfort to feel that they were protected from any backlash um, because the more extreme the law, the more likely it was to get shot down. Right. And so you could you could use that in various ways but with that backstop removed now there's real risk especially when we go back to this this whole idea too of what about that middle that both rebecca and andy have talked about right how now that this issue goes from theoretical to real how much does that change the prioritization of abortion in that middles rankings right and how does that change over years and that's going to be something that will evolve over time and does you know if you just look at the simple math here that poses real risks for republicans it'll probably take a while for that to play out if it does play out and but but that's a thing to think about
6: that's a real that's a Great opportunity to do with some research, right? Like how does a symbolic issue turn into a concrete issue and, and what, what are the political effects? Um, so, uh, yeah, th- these are really good thoughts. You guys are throwing some cold water on my electoral skepticism. So I like that.
4: <laughs> we don't know. I think so much as TBD, we'll see what happens. But what we can say is that state legislatures have already started to introduce policy going in both directions and who will be mobilized? I honestly don't know.
3: I I want to offer something anecdotal and not very political science-y, and that is that I am wondering if the level of shock and anger is able to be picked up in polls. Like The kind of people that are coming out of the woodwork in my world and sending things that they would never get as angry about, I, I think it's very, very hard to measure just how much Roe v. Wade meant to American women who took it for granted. The people who are under 50 years of age, it's what they grew up with. Mm -hmm. And the anger at removing it, I think is perhaps something that is unknown yet. And I'm not clear that we can predict the kind of role it could play. Um, I, I think we may see something that we don't expect from some people who normally would not mobilize.
4: Yeah. And in in an interesting way, when there was abortion scarcity before, you know, before Roe, abortion was taboo in a different way culturally, where people didn't talk about it in the same way that people do today. And also with the democratization of media and communications through things like social media, I think that's really furthering the destigmatization of abortion. And it's going to shape the response to abortion scarcity in a different way than we've seen in the past.
3: Uh, before I go to final thoughts, Lily, I, I want to go to you because you have you come from a very you're living in a very interesting state, Wisconsin, that has some that is in some in some ways emblematic of some of the bigger issues. And so if you would just speak briefly to that. Yeah, Wisconsin has a law that <clears throat>
0: was essentially nullified by Roe um, that comes from the eighteen. 18- 40s, I believe, um, that abortion is essentially illegal um, and criminalized, um, and that if Roe is overturned by the, you know, opinion that comes out in Dobbs, that the Wisconsin Ro- the Wisconsin law, just immediately is back in effect, um, and and also to think about this is it linking it back to some of our questions and discussion of geography, that the states that ring Illinois. Um, are likely to all have abortion, um, essentially, bans. And that Illinois will also become, again, kind of like Colorado a bit, um, as, uh, as uh, an avenue to provide um, abortions to people from Wisconsin, from Indiana, um, Iowa, um, and Kentucky, um, and so forth. And that, again, it's sort of this, it may be this position where the the access in not only Illinois, but specifically Cook County, um, which has a number of airports, um, train stations, um, and, you know, has, has been considered the co- crossroads of the country, um, may well become an abortion crossroads um, in a way that it hadn't Really been before, um, and so there are these questions of geography as well as the state legislature um, and Cook county um, and the city of Chicago that may have particular discussions around um, shall we say abortion tourism um, and and package deals um, that make it a destination for individuals from the surrounding areas that are going to be quickly living in states
3: where abortion is completely banned. Um, so I want to, uh, we could talk for a long time. We're going to talk again. This group has been uh, together now for a while when we've been tracking and we will continue to do that. So I, I'm going to wrap it up and ask for each of you for a, a sort of last thought. I'm going to put my last thought in first, just so it's not the last word here, which is that, I don't think that we should give in to the idea that originalism is without politics or without history. In fact, originalism is brand new, it's made up, and it has nothing to do with history. So for example, if we care about the original intent of the founding or the public that passed the Constitution, we must be consistent about that. So if we are going to quote Hale on abortion, we also need to quote Hale on whether Catholics can own property or whether we should stone people who have committed adultery. We have to be very, very careful. If that's the claim, then whatever was legal in the United States at a particular year is everything. Then coverture is back in play and we would need to pass a constitutional amendment to overturn it. So I, I think we have to continue to talk about originalism as a political move, as 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 a device that allows you to get a particular politics while pretending not to. Okay, who wants to go first here? Andrew, why don't you go first?
6: Rebecca's a state politics person, but I, I, I've been telling everyone who will listen for the last few years that that all. Our, our politics in America are nationalized and we care about national issues and we focus on the Supreme court and focus on the, the Congress and the presidency. But when it comes to abortion politics, beyond this decision, everything is going to happen at the state level. Uh, maybe not everything, but most things will happen at the state level. And so we need to be paying close attention to um, what I think how Rebecca described it earlier is the frantic to things that will have to happen after this comes down. And that's going to include, you know, what are the penalties, the criminalization. What do you do with people across state lines? How do you deal with uh, ordering things through the mail? Um, what do you do with certain types of um, medical procedures that might be related to or connected to abor- abortion? What do you do with elections um, at the what? Are do cities develop sanctuaries? Right, like all kinds of things will develop at the state and local level, and so we should be putting a ton of, of attention there.
4: Yeah, that's like it's, it's so interesting because although abortion has been nationalized, absolutely we're seeing this framework of inequality, this patchwork of inequality where states are further polarizing on this issue. But, you know, as I tell my students, all federal policies, you know, like Medicaid, for example, we implement in the state level and we see that emerge. So I guess I have kind of two two takeaway points I'd like to say. So the first one I'll say is that there's a lot of stereotypes about who gets abortion, what abortion is, and basically just our understanding of abortion is largely wrong. Um, So for example, most people who get abortions are not teenagers. It's also not typically later pregnancies. Most people who get abortions are because they don't want an abortion because it would be challenging for their life because of economic reasons or they just don't want another child. Um, And so a lot of our, preconceived notions about, like, what abortion is, is, is just inaccurate, it's old, um, it, it's just not, it's not true. Um, and that shapes how we feel, you know, our sympathy and our empathy with this issue. Um, And I would say that just like in general, a lot of people don't understand abortion. It's been uncomfortable for people to talk about. It's seen as taboo. Um, And so to that end, my pinned tweet right now is a slide deck of a talk I gave to the League of Women Voters recently to give an overview of this issue. And it's the basics. But honestly, a lot of people could benefit from relooking at the basics. I'll end with um, uh, a couple of years ago, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was interviewed on MSNBC by Erin Campbell or Carmen, and she asked about you know, kind of like, what do you see as the future of abortion policy? And this is around the time that Ginsburg is reckoning with this idea of like, what is a cumulative undue burden? And Ginsburg uh, says to Erin, she says, you're too young, you wouldn't know this. But back in the day, uh, divorce, it used to be the case that if you wanted a divorce, that people would have to fly to Nevada and live in Nevada for a certain period of time in order to get an abortion or sorry, in order to get a divorce. And she said, that's the future of abortion policy. It's gonna be basically like what divorce was back in the day. Women of means have always been able to travel, to get a divorce, to get an abortion, uh, to get whatever they need. And so this is an issue of of massive inequality where not everybody is going to be able to do that. So we've mentioned things like abortion tourism, which is the idea that people will cross state lines in order to get abortion. And that's already been happening. And in fact, just so people know, there's been an infrastructure to help with this that predates Roe, including abortion funds. But one problem with the network of abortion funds, which again are rigorous and longstanding, is that they tend to cover the procedure but not the travel. And so as we're seeing, um, these, this, uh, geography of inequality increase, it's going to be long distances that people have to travel. Uh, for example, if you live in Florida, it may be the case that you have to go to DC, uh, maybe North Carolina, but that really depends on our election. So these are some of the things that I've been thinking about a lot. Josh.
2: Sure. So, um, I think I want to frame my closing uh, like thoughts by going back to Alito's leaked draft opinion. Um, and so one of the things that struck me in reading that was how almost everything that he was leveling against Roe as a reason to overturn Roe could be immediately turned around and leveled at this opinion. Um, so one of those things is he ke- keeps coming back to this quote of saying that Roe is an exercise of raw judicial power. Right, of course, that can be leveled right back at this. Another is this kind of quixotic subtext assumption that one of the reasons why we need to overturn Roe is because Roe didn't solve abortion politics in the U.S. So the assumption there is that, well, by overturning Roe, you will solve abortion politics, which is completely misguided. Right. Um, and so the couple of things to come back to there one you know this was a point alluded to earlier but how there is this activist infrastructure that's been set up both in national organizations and within states that's been built over decades and that's not going anywhere right that will help perpetuate abortion politics and it'll just be a, it'll be similar to the pattern that we've seen over time which is that the court comes out with a ruling resets the parameters of the debate, and then this infrastructure that's been built kicks back into motion, acting within those new parameters, right? So that's, we can just expect that to continue, but in a either explicitly or largely kind of post row world, right? Um, okay, so, so another point to think about here is the space that abortion occupies in American politics. Just as we built this infrastructure over time, we've built abortion as a central political issue over time. That's not because of Roe, that's because of kind of a larger political, American political development story. And again, overturning Roe is not gonna somehow unwind that, right? So the infrastructure plus the status of the issue means that this persists and persists in a really ramped up way because of the fundamental changing of the political context. The last kind of point to bring out here too is the space for litigation that's being opened. There's a whole new wide world open for a whole new set of court cases to come out of this. And you can think back to some of the things that we talked about earlier in the discussion about the variation that exists underneath the umbrella term of abortion. So when we're talking about banning abortion in states, what does that actually mean, right? That is a huge space for litigation, to figure out what do these various state bans or you know, resulting state regulations of abortion, what do those things actually mean is gonna be fleshed out in court cases. This other kind of future that we have here of states, you know, states uh, legislating in order to pursue those who assist in abortion who are across state lines and then correspondingly progressive states that are now considering how they can protect those same people, right? How they can protect their abortion providers uh, within their states. This state versus state Legislation future that we're setting up again is ripe for litigation, right? How do we understand this in terms of interstate commerce and so on and so forth? So, the idea that you know, where where Alito ends by saying, "Who knows what the political ramifications of this will be," is so profoundly disingenuous that that it's it's shocking, really, and we can predict what the parameters of the future will be. And they are definitely not a future where Roe and abortion politics go away.
3: And to connect your and Rebecca's point, once you consider some of the actual facts, for example, medication, abortion, and what that entails, then you're actually not talking about interstate travel and whether or not a state can ban people from leaving the state to get an abortion, then you're talking about the extent to which you can ban the consumption of something inside state borders. So how we understand Rebecca's slide deck of (laughs) facts will then deeply impact the kinds of judicial questions there are. And that's what we didn't see in oral arguments. We never saw any of those facts come in.
2: Yeah. Just one other thing too, of like how much this is bringing us back to early day issues that brings us back to issues around regulating the mail, which actually gets us back to the what set up all of the contraception cases so long ago, right? Comstock laws were about regulating the distribution of contraception through the mail, right? So suddenly we return, you know, I can't get the exact date right here, but I'm going to say 100 years plus. Yeah, 1870s. Okay, there you go. All right. And the other one of just thinking about how much we're cycling backwards is thinking about the space that medical discretion played in the buildup to liberalizing abortion laws. In this future that we're talking about the ambiguity of what what is included under future bans and what does this do to doctors – exercising of discretion and so forth, gets us back to some of these issues that were coming up in the mid 20th century. Hey, at least now everybody
4: sees that the courts are political. So to me, that's a big win. The courts have been political since the very beginning, but now maybe people will see it.
3: Lily, do you want to have the last word? And
0: that was that was really the, the point I was going to bring up, is that you started off our discussion, Susan, with the question of what is the effect of Alito's d- potential decision if it hand- is handed down in much the same shape as we've seen the draft. And that comes up against this sort of cons. The conception of the place of the Supreme Court, but also the courts um, in our understanding and in our political atmosphere, as well as the imaginary space that they occupy as, you know, people who put on robes and decide things with reason um, and without politics. And that is completely undone by not only this decision, obviously other decisions as well, Shelby County and so forth, but that, that Alito's argument here is one where he, is trying to dress it up as you know this sort of uh, abstract legal understanding that is based in ideas that are hardly abstract hardly based in you know sort of uh, an accurate understanding of history or politics or women's rights um and and I think that you know the, where the court is then positioned in our understanding, in our governmental system, and in our imaginary space, is is sort
6: of crumbling. You know, Susan mentioned the the moral majority earlier, and, and fifty years ago, forty that that was the point, right? That that it was the people were running against these liberal courts who didn't represent the people, and and now we almost have some of the exact opposite sorts of discussions. and so it will be really interesting to see um, what develop what kind of movements develop um, and and where does that take us beyond just the issue of abortion? I mean I think one of the things that I'm really interested in is like how is it used to af- explicate other kinds of political issues and mobilize people in different directions and if if it follows that style of pattern, my guess is we will see um, you know abortion rights advocates push, Democrats and liberals in some other directions, too. So we shall see.
3: All right. Thank you, Lily Gorin, Andrew Lewis, Rebecca Kreitzer, and Josh Wilson and Candace Watts-Smith. We'll be continuing this conversation. If you have questions and want to hear particular topics, please email me or Lily, and we're happy to talk about them on PostScript. Thanks you all so very much.